The government set a goal to reduce serious harm and deaths in the workplace by a quarter in five years' time. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme looks at what achievements have been made to make the workplace safer and at what the casualty-heavy agriculture sector can learn from other businesses who've changed their health and safety cultures. We suspect a major incident underground, possible explosion. We may need as much emergency care as possible, ambulance, and probably helicopter on standby, because there are a lot of people underground at the moment. It was the disaster that hauled health and safety back into the public spotlight. Five years ago, the Pike River mine explosions killed 29 men. Their deaths devastated their families and led the country to reflect on the state of health and safety. Many were disturbed by the parlous state of protections that should ensure employees return home from work unscathed. I'm Gareth Thomas, and this insight looks at what gains have been made in efforts to keep workers out of harm's way and how different sectors could share their best plans to keep people alive on the job. By far the worst mining disaster in recent New Zealand history at the Strongman State Coal Mine, with 19 men killed instantly by a sudden explosion. Pits are notoriously dangerous places. A history of major losses of life shows mining accidents sitting alongside the big maritime, aviation and rail disasters. The 36 Auckland firefighters suffering a mystery rash after fighting a chemical fire last week will see their doctor. An Auckland fireman has been admitted to hospital after a worsening in the rash he suffered from chemicals in the ICI fire 10 days ago. Those with long memories might recall the ICI chemical fire in Auckland in 1984. Dozens of firefighters were injured, their suits weren't up to the job, and their commanders didn't have a tight grip on the crew's health and safety. Says her husband is in considerable pain and skin is peeling from his groin area. Inquiries were held, lessons were learned, and staff safety improvements were made. Then, in the early 1990s, one catch-all piece of legislation was brought in to replace specific safety laws designed for individual industries. After Pike River, those rules were reviewed by the Independent Task Force on Workplace Health and Safety, which found regulation was too light, confusing and, ultimately, weak. It also found there was a high level of tolerance for risk embedded in the national culture. While the 2010 Pike River explosion certainly concentrated minds on health and safety, a year before, the government challenged business leaders to improve conditions. There was a conversation that was started about 2009. The then Minister of Labour and ACC spoke to about 25 chief executives up in Auckland. That meeting led to the creation of the Business Leaders Health and Safety Forum, which is now headed by Francois Barton. And the conversation was one of mutual recognition that neither the regulator in isolation nor business in isolation were going to be able to get New Zealand where it needed to be. And so the question was put put fairly frankly is, I mean, do, do you as business leaders want to play a part? And basically from the moment that question was put forward uh, through to where we are today, the answer's been yes. And I mean, the 25 businesses in that first meeting, you know, we've got a membership now of over 200. So this is about a, a, a major extension to the uh, main terminal building. Uh, we're extending it to the At Wellington Airport, one of its managers, Jeff Eban, is showing me what building work's being done. The extension will create more parking spaces for aircraft. 
So it's an extension in the same format as the existing terminal. So Jeff Eban is driving the health and safety culture at this site and says the attitude of the contract's winner, Hawkins Construction, was crucial to them getting the job. So health and safety in the workplace is one of the criteria that we measure all tenders against and there's a hurdle rate so it has to achieve a certain level to even be considered. There's two aspects to this. One is that Hawkins did tick all the boxes in terms of what they submitted in their tender and secondly was their willingness to work with us in developing the special safety campaign that is unique to the site. So you're showing the leadership, Jeff. Why? Why show that leadership? Why have the passion for that leadership in health and safety? Where does it come from? I have a background in aviation and it comes from an understanding that having all the legislation and regulation in the world, whether it be about quality or safety, is, is only part of the solution. It's the culture of the people doing the work that is, that is tantamount. And so in this case, we wanted to take um, the givens, which are the legislation, the health and safety plans, the fact that we selected Hawkins um, partially based on their health and safety record, but we wanted to take that and go a step further and ensure that we actually are doing something to put uh, cultural values about safety into the workers, which is something that is not, is not, a, is not mandated, uh, it's voluntary, uh, but to me it's the, it's the secret to success. Hawkins Chief Executive Jeff Hunt says the company has changed the way it regards health and safety. So there's a high focus on um, health and safety. We've got 28 full-time health and safety managers, but the interesting thing is that we've come to realise that whilst we think our practice is good by New Zealand standards, there's actually quite a step up to be good by international standards. And this site is a very interesting site for us because Wellington Airport have actually taken a leadership position which is a bit unusual from a customer point of view and with that leadership position taken it enables us to actually raise the bar further and with collaboration. Can I just put a scenario to you? If there was a fatality at this site, who would be prosecuted? It would be investigated by uh, WorkSafe New Zealand. Hawkins sits at the top of the tree for that. So we've got accountability for all those working for us, the various subcontractors and so on. The prosecution may be aimed at Hawkins or it may actually be narrowed down to one of the subcontractors. And that's interesting. You mentioned there the subcontractors. Mm -hmm. The relationships in terms of how many subcontractors you have on site, it seems complex, it seems like a huge, difficult jigsaw. How do you maintain a health and safety culture right down the chain of all those subbies? OK, well, you've just identified the challenge. And uh, so if I tell you that Hawkins has 750 staff, but we've got about 8,000 individual employees of our subcontractors through our sites every year, and we've got 28 health and safety managers. So we've got the big challenge of actually shifting the culture of a whole portion of the industry along. What happens, say, for some reason your, your sparky subbies pulled out and you needed to get fresh ones in right away, within a couple of hours? Are you prepared to say, no, we have to wait until they go through the whole safety induction yeah. process? Yeah, absolutely. So you'll find off this project, people have already been uh, dismissed from the site permanently for infringing health and safety rules. Another thing is just the subcontractor selection process. So cheap doesn't necessarily mean 
safe and practiced and with the right cultures. The business journalist Patrick Smalley has followed company financial results for years, both as a reporter and working for the likes of Fonterra and Contact Energy. He's under no doubt the big firms are now making safety a priority and says the shift is genuine. I think large companies, yes, they regard it as axiomatic that they need to be more engaged on, on health and safety than in the past. Small businesses, I think, are still getting there. But Patrick Smalley says the boardroom-driven, better-resourced companies are moving faster and are more in tune with a new health and safety culture. In the response to the health and safety reform bill, it was quite clear that smaller businesses in particular, and farmers even more particularly, uh, were quite unhinged, many of them, by the possibility that they were going to have uh, a bunch of clipboard charlies running around telling them how to do their business and that there might be significant additional costs involved in the way that they run their businesses. There appears to be a reluctance across all sectors to anyone shouting from the rooftops that there has been some progress in reducing harm in the workplace, but there has been. Francois Barton from the Business Leaders Health and Safety Forum outlines some of the areas of improvement. I think there are pockets of improvement in New Zealand. I think the statistics would suggest there's not enough of those pockets yet. I would look to the Canterbury Rebuild as a positive example of where industry and government and local business are turning the corner. I think forestry is an example of how you can start to affect change. From a peak of 10 deaths in forestry in 2013, a year later the rate reduced to one. Advances in health and safety on the forest floor are also acknowledged by the Council of Trade Unions and its general counsel, Jeff Sissons. I think there's been some real changes in forestry. Forestry had a really terrible year in 2013 in regards to deaths through a whole range of means, including the private prosecutions which we've just taken, the independent forestry safety review, WorkSafe taking a much stronger enforcement approach with forestry, and actually industry engaging with unions and workers, we're seeing much fewer deaths and much fewer injuries in forestry. So if we can keep that momentum up, that could be a success story. But we need to make sure we have solutions that aren't just reliant on WorkSafe sending inspectors in. Forestry has a reputation as a dangerous industry. But the death rate has been reduced and changes in a few daily practices have been given credit. They're often simple adjustments to work practice such as getting workers together to talk about health and safety before they start logging for the day. The chief executive of the Forest Industry Contractors Association, John Stulen, explains how it works. So tailgate meetings are designed to just stand at the back of the truck, so not sit down and, and feel threatened. But um, the team has a talk and they identify what are the risks today, what's the weather conditions that are likely to change, where are they, where are they working in terms of where the prevailing wind is, what the slopes are, what the what the most recent rain is so it's talking about all the conditions that can affect what they're doing and, and making sure that they've got a plan to support each other when they're going to do the work that day and that might mean changing the plan while John Stulen says mindsets have changed 
a logging market slowdown and advances in technology have also helped to cut the number of accidents. There's been a big change in the last two years when the forest managers and their contractors have actually moved to change systems radically. So we've focused all our energy in the last two years on the big harms, tree falling and breaking out. Tree falling has, a, has had a large change to mechanisation. It's, it's been a paradigm shift where we've probably pulled 100 or more tree fallers out of the bush. They're now in machines. And so they're not operating chainsaws, they're operating machines. And New Zealand's become, in the last two years, a world leader in steep slope harvesting technology. We've developed it largely based in the Nelson region, and it's spread to the rest of the country in the last two years. Francois Barton from the Business Leaders Health and Safety Forum can speak with some authority on workplace deaths and accidents. Until recently, he was a senior figure at the health and safety regulator WorkSafe, with a focus on farming, where there have been more than 100 deaths since 2010. I think the jury's still out on how farming is going to get on top of its challenges. What's being discussed regarding agriculture and the farming sector? What ideas are being thrown around where you could possibly get on top of those figures? If you look at other, other sectors where there's some good lessons that agriculture, I guess, could maybe ask themselves is what are the critical things that are killing people? There's always going to be marginal issues. You know, hunters walking across your land, OK, absolutely. You know, I can see how that might be a concern. But you know, focusing on the critical risk is where you're going to have the critical change. Uh, and I don't think the world is really hugely unclear on what's, what's killing and injuring people in farming. It's machines, it's tractors, it's quad bikes, it's, it's, it's animal handling, it's fairly obvious risks. So I think you know, owning what's in front of you is what's important. The government says it's improving worker safety by introducing the Health and Safety Reform Bill. It's attracted much debate and derision for classifying dairy, sheep and beef farms as low risk, while the likes of rabbit breeding and worm farming are considered high risk. At the Frankton sale yards in Hamilton, there's no shortage of farmers to canvas about health and safety. Danny Mickelson is a sheep and beef farmer from Taihape. He's seen these statistics showing the number of deaths in agriculture, but says they fail to tell the full story. The people making the rules don't know anything about the farming sector. All they read is the stats, and, and they saw one or two people hurt themselves or kill themselves on quad bikes, but it's the whole passenger thing on quad bikes, which is just a load of nonsense. Um, I've got 3,000 acres of hill country and you can't tell me it's going to be safer to give somebody inexperienced a quad bike of their own to get them to the back of the farm rather than have them sit on the back of, back of my bike. It's, it's various bits and pieces. And no, nobody's against safety, don't get me wrong there. Nobody's against safety, but it's just a little bit of practicality coming into the thing. I'm pretty good with figures and I can make st stats say anything I want them to say. I take that with a grain of salt. And they love to say, oh, 101 people are killed. How, over how many years? Five years. So it's 20 a year. I think more people than that drown. What are they going to do? Stop people swimming. You know? Let's, let's, let's get a little bit realistic here. John Williams runs a beef farm at Matakana, north of Auckland. He's impressed with how Canada manages its safety risks. It sounds like a high figure, um, but I think we've got to be careful as a nation that we don't put too much bureaucracy in the way of the, of the family farm. 
because what's going to happen is all our farmers are going to end up being corporate farms because they'll be the only ones to be able to afford to, to implement all these things. And I think it's, yeah, I think if you travel the world, health and safety legislation is probably not as hard as it is here. For a, I've just spent a month in Canada and if you do anything in Canada, the first thing you do is sign a waiver. That just lets the operator of, of whatever they're doing, it just lets them off. That's how they operate and it's, it's quite a simple system. So the safety is on the individual, not on the farm owner or, or the employer as such. Pretty impressive country. They don't seem to have many issues. Today, Warwick Bryant has a lifestyle block, but back in the day, he operated a big farm. He says when it comes to safety, the responsibility should lie with the workers. You can have all the health and safety regulations you like, but it's still down to the person that's handling the stock. And they're talking about the um, quad bikes and that sort of thing. Um, I've had quad bikes ever since they came out and started off with a three-wheeler. They were quite dangerous, but it's still... There's nothing wrong with the quad bikes. It's the people riding the quad. And helmets on them. Uh, I'd like to know how many people that have been killed, say, on a quad bike have been as a result of uh, head injuries. We don't seem to get those figures. I've come for you. Aren't you supposed to be carrying a... Sign? I do a lot better with farm vehicles. Government safety messages have been aimed at farmers for years. Don't be part of the summer harvest. Health and safety, it's no joke. The chief executive of Federated Farmers, Graham Smith, says safety now features in what he calls the group's A-League of Priorities, joining the environment and science and innovation. And he says efforts are being made to take health and safety training to the paddock. As far as on the farm goes, we've just run a series of workshops with uh, uh, our members, not all members obviously, but with um, a nice cross-section of members with regards to developing some really good practical guidelines with, with regards to uh, quad bikes. Um, the, the reality is when you look at the evidence, um, quad bikes and tractors are the, uh, is the equipment that, uh, that injures and kills uh, the, the greatest majority of people. And so um, what we want to ensure is that a lot of the solutions aren't driven by your ability or my ability to fill in a, a piece of paper but it's driven more by how do we clearly understand the risks and how do we manage the risks on a day-to-day -day basis, um, particularly with regards to quad bikes. But what does Graham Smith read into the figures showing more than 100 deaths in agriculture over five years? It seems to average most years between about 17 and 20 deaths, of which about half uh, relate to quads or uh, tractors. Um, the reality is it's too high. In a perfect world, we'd have no no serious accidents, no deaths. Have you got total buy-in from the farmers on this? Oh, look, nobody on a day-to-day -day basis goes out looking to injure themselves. And most farms still are you know, family-run family concerns. And so it goes without saying, you know, everyone is, is wanting to, to ensure that they're safe. But you know, we also need to remember that collectively farmers are spending millions of, 
of hours each year working. And so if you start to break the statistics down into sort of accidents per 100,000 hours, the situation is not as bad as it, as it initially seems. What do you mean by that? You, you're saying it's, we have to accept that there will be deaths? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that um, we, we understand that there's risk and, in fact, as, um, a lot of our focus is around uh, ensuring people understand that risk and identify the risk. Um, it's partly around, for example, ensuring that people have, they have mental models and processes that they can use, whether they be in the milking shed or uh, out in the, on the back blocks of a farm, to clearly identify risk and then do something about it. Um, it's, a, it's an approach not dissimilar to um, what a pilot, for example, would use when they're flying an aircraft. Graham Smith says Federated Farmers is getting good support from the safety regulator and confidence is building that the death rates within the farm gates can be improved. One of the things that uh, we're working with WorkSafe at the moment to ensure is that there is good data that clearly identifies where the major issues are and it's by identifying those issues that should then enable a range of strategies to be put into place that then gives us the biggest impact. And so um, to give WorkSafe credit, they've increased the amount of resources that, um, that they've put into, in essence, data analysis, um, so that ultimately we all understand where the real issues are and where we can all make the greatest impact. And if we do that well, well then uh, there's a very high probability that these statistics will be far better in, um, in 12 months, let alone two years. Don't like pine forests anymore. liked working in the forestry, the comradeship. The Council of Trade Unions has been leading a campaign to encourage MPs to develop tougher health and safety laws. It's included video featuring bereaved families of people killed at work and hundreds of white crosses put up to symbolise the number of people killed while earning a living. The CTU says it's speaking on behalf of all workers, not just paid-up union members. It describes New Zealand's health and safety record as fundamentally unacceptable, appalling and in need of change. So that includes agriculture, the sector with heavy worker losses. Jeff Sissons is the general counsel for the CTU. I think the first really important thing with agriculture is for farmers to face up to the scope of the problem. We know that over a third of the deaths in the last five years have come in agriculture. We know that more people have died in quad bike accidents in agriculture than have died in forestry in the last five years. The Shelby Wright attitude isn't serving farmers right, it isn't serving their workers right, and it's not even serving their families right, because we see a lot of deaths of children and young people in the agriculture sector. How do you change those attitudes on the farm? I think, like forestry, we need to get farmers talking to their workers on an industry basis. We need WorkSafe to be proactive about inspections and enforcement on farming. We've seen some good work from the Labour Inspectorate looking at issues of hours of work on in dairy farming. The Health and Safety Inspectorate taking a similar approach would be really useful here. Why do you think farming is the one that isn't showing any movement in terms of improving the lot for workers and their health and safety? I think the absence of organised worker voice in farming is holding agriculture back. I think that 
there's the number eight wire culture in farming encourages risk taking and improvising. I think some of the structural issues of farming, like being isolated, are big challenges. I also think that many areas of farming are increasingly reliant on migrant workers, and migrant workers are often very vulnerable and afraid to raise issues. If the forestry sector has gained some ground on safety, what could farmers learn from the loggers? John Stoolan of the Forest Industry Contractors Association has some answers. The people who did our safety review really put it in terms that can be applied to any industry. They came and talked to all the people during the review and, and they said, you know what, forestry is, is a lot of people who are can-do people. People need to change to be can-do-safely people. And really that is a culture change that when you've got men in, in large groups and they're going to do tough physical tasks with, you know, outdoors and in all weathers and on all slopes, they need to understand that it's actually far more profitable to look at the health and safety first, attend to that on a daily basis and make sure that everyone's staying safe. Whereas right now we see a lot of people who are can-do, it ends up that they have to pick up the pieces after a serious harm or a fatal accident, and then they learn that they should have taken care of it on a regular basis because it's far too costly to deal with the aftermath. At 3.45pm on the 19th of November, our mine exploded and our lives changed forever. Unfortunately, I have to inform the, the public in New Zealand at 2.37 today, there was another massive explosion underground and uh, based on that explosion, no one survived. One of the men killed in the Pike River disaster was the contractor Milton Osborne. Now, his widow, Anna Osborne, has become passionate about ensuring workplaces are safe. She's not waiting for laws to save people's lives. Instead, she's promoting safety on the West Coast in her spare time. I go to our local polytech in Greymouth and I talk to the mechanics students there, I talk to the digger school students, I talk to the carpentry students. I've actually gone out, taken time off work to do that because it's just that message that has to get out there and, you know, any one of them could find themselves in a similar position because in New Zealand, health and safety is just abysmal. And how are those young men, young women responding? Well, actually, it's been quite sad to see some of them get up and leave in tears because they haven't been able to handle it. Um, others come up to me and say, thank you, thank you so much for giving your time and, and your story. It means a lot hearing it firsthand. I mean, because people haven't been through a tragedy like I have before, they've never really had to think about it until they actually listen to me, see me in person, look at me and listen. And it really hits home and, you know, quite a few of them are in tears. As I say, some of them have left because it's just too much. I'm Gareth Thomas and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Dan Bebben. Additional reporting was by Carol Stiles and Andrew McRae.